John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. Please stand for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray once more. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for this particular day as we are centering our hearts on the incarnation and the birth of your son, Jesus. We pray, Lord, that you may speak to us through the preaching of your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, all for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, church, lately we have been in a sermon series on the attributes of God, and in the past four weeks in particular, we've been covering what's known as the four classical incommunicable attributes of God. That is, the four attributes that God uniquely possesses by virtue of being creator. These are attributes that he does not share. He does not communicate with us creatures, even us creatures that are made in his image. So we've studied in the past four weeks his immutability. God is unchanging. His independence God is self-existing and self-sufficient. His eternality, God is timeless. He's not defined in temporal terms. And last week, his omnipresence. God is everywhere. He's not defined in spatial terms. Now, we explained earlier why it's so important for us to meditate on these theological concepts. Because it provides the needed correction to our man-centered views of God. It provides us with a proper biblical perspective. Because we have this problematic, problematic tendency of merely viewing God as a bigger, better, stronger, wiser, kinder version of ourselves. I said before that we tend to think about God as we imagine ants will think about man. To ants, we're like gods. We're so much bigger. We're so much stronger. But, of course, really, we're just made of the same stuff. We're bound by the same limitations of space and time. I mean, in the end, ants and humans, we all exist on the same plane. We differ, but we only differ in degree. We're not in kind. We're all still creatures. 
And that's why we said before that a better analogy would be to compare the difference between God and us with the difference between Shakespeare and any one of his characters in his plays. They differ not only in degree, but in kind. So God alone, we said, is the author of life, and we were merely the characters in his story. In other words, God transcends human existence. He exists on another plane. And I hope our recent meditations in the past few weeks on these four incommunicable attributes has helped you to reinforce this view of God, this, this view of his transcendence, to deepen your conviction that God is holy, 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 that he sits high enthroned above in the heavens above, and he is transcendent over all creation. I hope this is the high view of God that you've been coming away with in our times together in the past few weeks. And that's all been intentional. We covered all of that intentionally to lead up to today because we are focusing, of course, in this Advent season on the miracle of the incarnation. Because only until you've established a, a really high view of a holy, infinite, transcendent God, only then are you ready to truly celebrate Christmas. Only then are you ready to appreciate the imminence of God, his nearness to his people. Considering how the God on high, enthroned in the heavens above, came down to earth, enwrapped in a manger below, that juxtaposition of God's transcendence and his eminence, that contrast is what accentuates the extent of God's mercy and of God's love that's communicated to us in the birth of Christ. And so this morning, we're going to focus, of course, on the birth of Christ, but I want to focus on the birth of Christ in John's gospel. Now, I know normally if you hear a Christmas message out of one of the Gospels, it's going to be a sermon on a birth narrative that you find either in Matthew or in Luke. But, but John offers us something different, something unique. Instead of providing for us a genealogy or a manger scene, he offers a heavy dose of theology. Now, John's goal is still the same as all the other gospel writers. I mean, he's presenting Jesus as the true God who truly became a man for our salvation. Christ becomes a son of man that we might become, become sons of God. I mean, that's, that's the same message that you're going to find in all four gospels. But instead of giving us a birth narrative, instead of a manger scene, John stretches the story all the way back to eternity past, to the beginning, before the heavens and the earth, before anything was, there was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John's point is that the Christmas story should never be treated as the standalone story. It should always be understood as the climax of the one big story that pre-exists all others. It's a story of how God seeks to be with 
his people, how he seeks to dwell with us, to make his presence felt among us. It starts in heaven, in pre-existent glory, and it culminates on earth in veiled glory, incarnate in the man, Christ Jesus. So, friends, my goal this morning is to meditate on the doctrine of God's eminence, of God's nearness, but all, of course, within the context of the story of the incarnation. That's where we're going. So we're going to be looking at John chapter 1, verses 14 to 18, and I want to consider three ways in this text in which Jesus is presented to us. If you want to follow along, look in your bulletin, you'll see an outline there. And these are, are, are the three ways he's presented, these are three points of our message. First, he is the transcendent word. Second, he is the eminent word. And third, he is the revealed word. Now, as we just said, for us to truly appreciate God's eminence, his nearness, it needs to be examined in light of his transcendence. And the Apostle John agrees with that. That's why before he introduces the incarnation, before he turns to God's eminence in verse 14, he begins his gospel by emphasizing transcendence. Christ is introduced to us as the transcendent word. Look at verse 1. We didn't read verse 1, but it might be a very familiar text to you. John 1.1 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, the Greek word for word is logos. Now, logos is an ancient term pregnant with meaning. Now, it's largely lost to, to modern readers like us. We don't really see the significance in applying that term to Christ. But for John's original audience, for first century Hellenistic, or, or Hellenistic Jews or for Greeks, the connection there would have been obvious, would have been apparent. Logos, the word, could, could mean a word or a message. Logos is translated as word or message. It can also, though, be translated as reason or logic. And in the ancient world, Greek thinkers would spend their time arguing and debating about the logos of life, the reason of life, the logic of life. What is life all about? What's the underlying rationale, this underlying reason governing life and holding it all together? That's what they would spend their times discussing. There were different schools of thought back then. The Epicureans were the thinkers who embodied the, uh, the idea of transcendence. They, they, they liked transcendence, but in their view, the gods were so utterly transcendent as to be inconsequential to our lives. They were like ancient deists in that they viewed the gods as far removed, far detached. And so they concluded that there really is no logos out there. There is no reason to life. But if there is no logos, if there's no underlying logic or reason to everything, then all we're left with is just a just do it, feel good philosophy of life. Just indulge your desires. Whatever you feel like doing, you do. And that's the essence of Epicureanism. Eat, drink, and be merry, and repeat until you die. That's Epicureanism. Now, there was a rival school of thought 
the Stoics, they were more pantheistic in their worldview, and, and they would have been more favorable to the idea of eminence. Their conception of the divine, which they preferred to call the Logos, was considered, though, this impersonal force found in all things. And so in that sense, they were pantheistic, that, that the Logos is just this impersonal thing in everything. It's just part of creation. It's, it's, it's the animating principle of life. And the Stoics' philosophy was all about learning and living by this Logos, this rational principle, this divine reason governing and holding all things together. In contrast to the Epicurean Stoics, were principled people. They were rational thinkers, disciplined in restraining their desires. Okay, hold all of that context in mind here because by adopting this Logos language as he introduces Christ, John knows what he's doing. He knows that he is injecting the Christian faith into this ancient philosophical debate. And immediately, he offends the Epicureans and their deism by affirming that there really is a Logos out there. But then immediately, he equally offends the Stoics and their pantheism by distinguishing this Logos from all of creation and identifying the Logos with the Creator himself. I mean, notice how John 1.1 directly alludes to Genesis 1.1. There's a direct correspondence. In the beginning was God, Genesis. In the beginning was the Word, John's Gospel. So the Word, the Logos, is a transcendent Word. It transcends all because it pre-exists all and is the very source of all. It's the Creator. Look at verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He created all. So this is the message John wanted to communicate, and this is why he didn't start off his gospel with another manger scene, because that would have just conveyed God's eminence. No, instead he began his gospel by introducing Jesus as the transcendent word. But it has to be said that the transcendence that's affirmed here in John's gospel and really in the rest of Scripture, it couldn't be further apart from the transcendence of the deistic Epicureans. You see, to a deist, God has no hand in the governance of or in the the governance of of creation or or of human affairs. I mean, yes, he, he started it, but he doesn't get involved afterwards. So he's like that, you know, divine clockmaker who builds a clock, winds it all up, and then lets it take its course, never to intervene. God is so utterly transcendent that he has effectively ceded his authority. He has ceded his sovereignty to us. We have taken his place. Deism deifies human autonomy. That's, that's deism. But biblical transcendence paints an entirely different picture than that. God, according to the biblical worldview, is not distant. He's not detached or unknowable. He hasn't stepped away. He hasn't ceded his authority or his sovereignty to the human self. No, Scripture is clear that God, though he is transcendent, 
is still personally involved in creation. He still rules all things, even as it describes him often as ruling on high. In the highest heavens, he rules very high, and yet he's ruling among us. I mean, just listen to a few texts. Listen to, for example, Psalm 113. Psalm 113, verses 4 to 6. Listen to this. The Lord is high above all nations in his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? So that's the language of Scripture. When the Bible speaks of God's transcendence, it employs that metaphor of height. God is high. He is the most high. He is above all nations, all rulers, all gods. He is enthroned above. But that kind of language, friends, you have to understand this, is not meant to be taken literally. It's not a spatial concept. That, that metaphor of height is intended to invoke God's majesty, his kingship, his sovereignty over us because he's high enthroned above, ruling above on high. So, friends, the whole point is that we do want you to have a high view of God. But we don't want you to, we don't want to lull you into a sense of apathy, assuming that God is so high and so distant as to not notice or as to not care about what goes on in your life or about the choices that you make. That's why any teaching on God's transcendence needs to be taught in conjunction with his eminence. So let's consider our second point. Another way that Christ is presented to us in John chapter 1. He is the eminent word. And that's John's point when we get to verse 14. When he says that the transcendent Logos became flesh and dwelt among us. In becoming incarnate, Christ became supremely eminent. Now, it's fair to say that John, here in chapter 1, is probably borrowing the language of the Logos from the Stoics. Stoics were the ones who popularized this term. But he wasn't trying to just equate Christ with the Stoics Logos. No, by adopting this language and now applying it to Christ, John is actually trying to undermine the view of the Stoics. Because remember, their Logos amounted to nothing more than an impersonal, rational principle governing all things, all of life. And so here you have John, in verse 14, making an emphatic claim that the Logos is not some immaterial, impersonal principle, but rather the Logos is a material, personal person. The Logos has a name. We call him Jesus. He's the underlying logic. He's the divine reason that the ancients used to argue about. So when we say, friends, that Jesus is the reason for the season, Man, that is a far more profound statement than we tend to think. And this reason, this logos, became flesh. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. 
Now, I think John's word choice here is intentional. He didn't say, notice, he didn't say that the word became man, anthropos, or that the word became a body, soma. No, he specifically chose the word flesh, sarks in the Greek. So whenever you see that word, sarks, used in Scripture, it usually has a connotation of creatureliness. Sarks, or flesh, emphasizes our creaturely weakness or our frailty in contrast to the Creator and His imperishable nature. And so that's why the use of the word flesh here, I think, is significant. I mean, if you read old Greek mythologies, you're going to find examples of either Zeus or Apollos becoming an anthropos, becoming a man. Or you'll read stories about them taking on a soma, putting on a body. But they were, of course, only appearing in human form. They were slipping into a human body like you would a costume or a disguise. They were never said to have become sarks. That would have been too crass for a divine being. It would have been too beneath them to become flesh. And yet that is what John is claiming about the Son of God. The Word became flesh. That doesn't mean that Jesus just slipped into a human body that he can just take on and take off at will. He wasn't just masking his divine glory behind flesh. No, the incarnation means that he laid aside his glory to become flesh. See, Jesus is the second person of the Godhead. In the beginning, he was with God the Father, and he was God himself. That, of course, is the doctrine of the Trinity. God is one being who eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each person is fully God and fully possesses the glory of God. And yet, in becoming flesh, the Son laid aside the glory that he shared with the Father from the beginning before the world existed. Now, that doesn't mean that he laid aside his divinity. In becoming flesh, Jesus did not become less God. There was no subtraction in him, but there was an addition, an addition of a human nature. In one person, in Jesus, there is now two natures, one fully divine and one fully human. He is the God-man. He is God in the flesh. Now look back at verse 14 with me. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now that word for dwelt, it literally means to pitch one's tent, to go camping and to put up a tent. It's used quite often in the Greek version of the Old Testament known as the Septuagint. It was used quite often to describe Israel's tabernacle. You see, during Israel's wilderness years, they pitched a tent, which they called the tabernacle, in the center of camp while they were wandering in the wilderness those 40 years. And at the end of every day, that is where the Shekinah glory of the Lord would come down and rest on this tent, on this tabernacle. And the tabernacle is where Moses 
would then meet with God. It represented God's presence on earth, God's nearness, God's eminence. And so John is choosing his words very carefully here. In saying that the word became flesh and dwelt or and tabernacled among us, he's comparing, of course, the incarnate flesh of Jesus. Jesus' flesh to Israel's tabernacle. In the Old Testament, God came near. He took up residence among his people. At first, of course, in this tabernacle, in a hide-covered tent, and then later on in a brick-laid temple. But now what John is saying is that God has come even closer and in a far more intimate way. He has now come as a flesh and blood person. John goes on to say that this new tabernacle in, in, in the flesh of Je- in, in this new tabernacle, in this flesh of Jesus, he says, we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So in the flesh of Jesus, we have seen glory. And that's an amazing statement here, if you think about it. Because even though even though he laid aside his glory to become flesh, there apparently still is a glory to be seen when you look at Jesus through eyes of faith. I mean, if you were looking at Israel's tabernacle, if you're looking at that tent, all you, you, would, all you would see, it would just appear to you as just a tent made of animal hide. It had no decorations on it. It had no adornments on it. And you would think, there's nothing really glorious about it. It's just a tent. But of course, that's where you'd be wrong. Because in the seemingly humble and ordinary, the greatest glory dwelt. Well, I think in the same way, it could be said of the person of Christ. You look at him lying in a manger, you see an ordinary baby. You see him preaching on a hillside, and you see a good moral teacher. You see him healing the sick, feeding the poor, and you see a a noble social reformer. But it's only, it's only when you look at Jesus through eyes of faith do you see the glory. The glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And verse 16 just continues that thought. Look at verse 16. For from his fullness... We have all received grace upon grace. Now, to receive grace upon grace suggests to us that there is a succession of graces, as if an old grace were now being replaced by a new grace, grace upon grace. Now, what could that be referring to? Well, we're told in verse 17. The answer is there. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So the grace that was given to us through Moses, in this case through his law, has been replaced by the new grace that now comes through Jesus Christ in the gospel. Now I think it's fascinating, though, that the law of God, the law of Moses, is described to us as a means of grace. I mean, let's be honest. 
the law doesn't normally feel like grace to us. I mean, when you read the Mosaic law, when you consider all of its commands and its demands, I mean, do they really sound like grace to you? Or do they sound more like a burden? If reading the law feels like a burden to you, if it feels like a heavy yoke around your neck, then apparently you're reading it wrong. The law is grace to you. It's it's just not enough grace to you. The law is not sufficient to reveal the fullness of God's glory, the fullness of his grace and truth. And for that, for the fullness, you're going to need to turn to Christ and the gospel. Saving grace and saving truth only comes through Jesus Christ. That's the reason why the divine reason, the Logos, became flesh and pitched his tent among us. That's why he came near. That's why he became supremely eminent in the person of Christ Jesus. He came to fulfill and to make fully known the grace and truth of God's great love for sinners like us. A love that was, of course, put on display both in the way that Christ bore our flesh in his incarnation, as well as in the way that he bore our sins in his crucifixion. Through the humble life and the sacrificial death of Christ, he became the perfect revelation of God's grace and truth to us. And that's conveyed, of course, in our third and final point, as Christ is presented to us, as we said, as the transcendent word, the eminent word, and now the revealed word. Jesus makes the unseeable God seeable. He makes the unknowable God knowable. Listen to verse 18 again. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, He has made him known. No one has ever seen God. Now, now that's not because he's super elusive. It's not because he's just really good at, at hiding from us. It's not because he dwells on unreachable mountain heights or he resides below in inaccessible ocean depths. Again, that would be to assume that God exists on the same plane as us. And that's why we stressed earlier that God is not just this infinitely larger being than us. If that were so, if that were the case, then it wouldn't be accurate to say that God is unseeable. Because even the tiniest of ants can still look up and see gigantic humans walking the earth. They can still see us. So that's why we said earlier that the better analogy here would be to compare God to the author and we are the characters in his story. Just think about it. None of Shakespeare's characters have ever seen him. In fact, they don't even know he exists. Macbeth doesn't know who Shakespeare is. Hamlet has no personal relationship with his author. There's no way. It's impossible. Unless, of course, Shakespeare were to ever write himself into the story. If he were to ever become a character like us. And friends, don't you see? That is, of course, what Christmas is all about. 
The incarnation was the author's way of writing himself into the story. The word became flesh. He dwelt among us. God's not the kind of author who just remains distant, who remains unknown, transcendent, inaccessible. No, in love, he came near and he made himself known. He is seeking a relationship with us. But when he came to his own, his own did not receive him. You see, in this story, we have gone astray. We have rejected the logos of life. We've rejected the author. We've spurned his authorship and his authority, and we've tried to write our story as we want to tell it. That's the essence of human sinfulness. And God, as the author, has every right to just close the book on us. But instead, he wrote himself into the story, and he penned his own death. He could have written himself into the story as a mighty warrior, as a regal king with great power at his disposal. He could have compelled our obedience by sheer force. But instead, he gave himself the role of a servant who lays down his life for others. He gave himself the role of a lamb who is sacrificed in order to take away the sins of the world. The Christmas story reveals to us the infinite extent of God's love to us. And yet our tendency is to doubt it. We tend to question the limits of God's love. Maybe it's because, maybe it's because we know ourselves. And we know we just keep falling into the same sins, falling into the same destructive patterns. And we wonder if perhaps we've disappointed God one too many times. Maybe we finally have crossed the line. Maybe we have reached the limit. But then you're reminded. You're reminded of the heights of his transcendence and the depths to which Christ descended in order to be imminent with us, which tells you that there is no limit to his love. There is no line that you can cross where you go beyond it and you are beyond the reach of God's love. If he descended so far to such lengths to be near to us, then why would you fear that you ever have gone too far? You can never stray too far from the imminent word of God. Let that be an encouragement to those of you who feel far from the Lord right now. And if you do feel that way, don't settle for the state that you're in. Don't, don't, don't just settle for being far from God. Do something about it. You can draw near to God. And we are promised in Scripture that he will draw near to you. Brothers and sisters, I'm not surprised that some of you are feeling tired. Some of you are feeling weary, especially during this holiday season. Many of you, I'm sure, feel burdened, like you're carrying the weight of the world on your shoulders. So I want to invite you to rest this Christmas Eve and to remind you that the author of life who is writing the story that you find yourself in, I want to remind you that he has already finished the book. He's already written the ending. He's given us a preview. Spoiler alert, he comes back. And he brings all of heaven in tow. 
His kingdom will come in all of its fullness. His will will be completely done on earth as it is in heaven. And so as we celebrate his first advent this weekend, let's rest in peace as we faithfully await his second advent. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this needed reminder during this season that you are near. You have come nearer than we can imagine. You have come in the person of Christ. For those of us who who trust in Christ as our Lord and Savior, you have come also in the person of the Spirit to take up residence in our lives, in our hearts. Oh, Lord, we need a feeling sense of your nearness right now. Oh, Lord, show us how close you are to us. And may all of us draw near to you as you draw near to us. In Jesus' name.